start at the beginning, Daniel 8. I'm just kidding. I know. I know. <laughs> you guys are like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. This reminds me for uh, those that can go old school. Um, I first started teaching Wednesday nights. It was back in 97. So I've been doing this for 15 years. And we used to teach in the high school. And the way we taught in the high school was we just sat on this little chair and there was this little mic. And this is all we did is we sat here just like that. 
And and so in some ways, being up here brings back a lot of memories. The honest part of it is I absolutely hate this. Because as I'm looking at you, there's this big black thing right in front of my face. So, and I can't walk around and I like to move. So, with that being said, let's jump to where we were here. And uh, verse 17, excuse me, verse 20. We will figure this out. Who are the two, uh, the two horns? They are the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Who's the goat? Verse 21, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So this is pretty straightforward stuff. What God is trying to say here, the ram is the Medes and the Persians. The reason why it has two horns is because there was two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. Verse 21, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. If you jump back and you look right here, look at verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. If you study history, the Greeks conquered the world so quickly, so swiftly. It was unbelievable. It's not been matched maybe till you get a chance to go to the Blitzkrieg in World War II. This was just with this amazing conquering of the world. So it happened so fastly, it's like he wasn't even touching the ground. And he was considered that male goat. And the large horn that's between his eyes is the first king. That would be Alexander the Great. Verse 22, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. If you remember your history, Alexander the Great died suddenly at age 32, actually in the Babylonian palace. He died. And so what happened was, since there was no heir to his throne, his kingdom was divided up, you can see on your sheets there, between his four generals. So those four horns are the four generals that then split up his power. Now you may be thinking once again, why are we talking about all this history? This is for a couple reasons here. It goes back to the point that we've said numerous times. God likes to show his hand. He likes to. And part of the way he can show his hand is he can say nobody else can do this. No one else can tell you exactly what's going to happen. This is not some generic prophecy. When you see certain prophecies by other religions or other groups, they're so vague, so vague, that you can make it sound like anything you want. I can remember one time when I was back in high school, uh, one of our teachers was trying to prove a point when it came to horoscopes. So he asked everybody, and he divided this up into the different sections that we were in our horoscope. And he says, I want to read your horoscope to you. So he divided us up, read us all of our horoscope, and then he asked us, so what would you think of that? Is that amazing how it all came together? There were certain people that was like, wow, that's amazing how it all came together. It sounds so true. He goes, I purposely read you the wrong horoscope just to show you and to teach you that there is nothing in it. I can make a prophecy, and I can make it sound so vague that everything sounds good. There will be amazing movement of something in the West. Well, what's that? Well, it can be anything you want. God doesn't beat around the bush with this. He comes right out and says in verse 20, that's the Medes and the Persians. Verse 21, it's the Greeks. Verse 22, and then his kingdom's going to be divided up into four things. I think that's pretty amazing. That's the Lord knowing the future, and that's part of the beauty of this. So here's a real simple point, and don't let the simplicity of this point overshoot it. If God knows what's going to happen, why are we worried about what's happening in our lives right now? If he knew that the Medes and the Persians were going to come, and they were going to be in power for a while, and then the Greeks were going to come, and they were going to be in power for a while, why, why are we worried about things? We have a tendency to sit here and worry about work. We have a tendency to worry about family situations. What about this bill? What about this situation? And we sit here and we get all worked up about it, where God in Daniel chapter 8 can say the names of the nations that are going to come and come into power. If he knows what's going to happen, we have absolutely nothing to be worried about in any way whatsoever. None. goes back to that passage in the uh, Gospels for me where God says, look to the birds of the air or the lilies of the fields. I've never seen a bird worry. 
They just flutter around doing their thing. We're the ones that analyze and overanalyze every situation, and God says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? That's what it comes down to. So the first thing you need to get here is realize the reason God does prophecy is to prove he's God. The second reason God does prophecy is to prove if I know what's going to happen, he says, can't you trust me with what's going on right now? So real quick, Quick reminder, Ram is the Medes and the Persians, the male goat are the Greeks, the four horns there are the uh, four generals that take over after Alexander the Great dies. That's the first level of prophecy that we need to talk about tonight. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about this before we move on here to the next step? Okay, let's see what else happens then. Let's go ahead and talk about this. Now, verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which would be Jerusalem. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the palace of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of his transgression, an army was given over the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot and he said to me for 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be clean now what we're talking about here if you look at your sheets this is a phrase we like to use in prophecy called dual prophecy or dual fulfillment this prophecy means two different things so we need to figure out here first off who's this little horn in verse 9 the first prophecy fulfillment is a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you know history, what happens is he became a ruler at this time, and what he did is exactly what it says right here. Verses 10, 11, and 12, he went into Jerusalem, and he conquered it. According to history, he had this army of about 20,000 people, and I don't know why the Jews believe this, but he walked towards Israel, and he said it was a peacekeeping mission. He showed up on the Sabbath. Then he slaughtered the Jews, just utterly slaughtered them. And so what happened then is he came, verse 11, exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, took away the daily sacrifices. He took over the temple. According to history, he set up a statue of Jupiter and the Holy of Holies. He took swine's blood, which if you know anything about Jews, uh, pigs are considered unclean, and he covered all the utensils of the uh, temple in swine's blood. This is what he did. And so at verse 12, because of the transgression, an army was given over the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice. That's, that's exactly what he did. Well, according to this, he was going to do it according to verse 13, excuse me, for verse 14, for 2,300 days, which really means sacrifices there, so you need to cut that in half. So for about 1,150 days, for a little over three years, this is what happened. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this part, but history does. This is, if you're familiar, this is where the Maccabean uh, revolt came into play. This is where the Maccabees came, and they came and actually defeated this person. And that's where you get uh, all those different Jewish festivals that happen, if I believe correctly. It's uh, uh, Hanukkah, if I remember correctly. Isn't that right when it comes to the Maccabees? So the Maccabees came and defeated him. So there's just a little bit of a history lesson there. This guy came into the temple, covered everything with swine's blood, set up a false god. Maccabees come. There's the Maccabee Revolution. Because of that, we have Hanukkah. And that's what the first prophecy there. But there's just something called, once again, a dual prophecy. Because it's not only talking about Antiochus, and that guy was bad. I mean, I mean, there's not much defense you can say about this guy. Setting up a, a, a statue in the temple of the Holy Holies, covering everything with swine's blood, and, and killing and, and murdering children and women and men. There's not a lot of good you can say. But jump ahead now to verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached the fullness, a king shall arise. See, now we're talking about the Antichrist, but it also is about Antiochus. Having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and is prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, 
He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He will destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince princes but he shall be broken without human means and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future this is a picture here of the antichrist and what a description that it happens verse 23 it happens in the latter times he's fierce he's sinister verse 24 his power is mighty he'll be ruling the world at this time he destroys verse 24 he prospers he thrives Verse 25, he goes against the people that are holy. He actually tries to take on God. If you remember the, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, the way it looks, it looks like the Antichrist takes his forces and army and says, hey, let's take on Jesus. And that's when Jesus returns in the second coming. My goodness, if you stop and you think about that, he tries to rise against the prince of princes. He shall be broken without human means. What's that mean? No human being brought him down. God brought him down in judgment. So there's a dual prophecy, a dual fulfillment that's going on. One, it's about Antiochus that we already talked about, and the second is also about the Antichrist that's going to be coming. Now, what's the stock real quick? You may have any quick questions, comments about this before we move on with the rest of the stuff. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, yep. It, it is, and really, if you want to look at it, Daniel chapter 8 is the Reader's Digest Convinced version, and Daniel chapter 11 is the full three-part miniseries novel. Um, Daniel 11 is a long chapter, verse 45 verses, and there's a lot of information in it. But once again, it'd be really easy for us to stop here and say, okay, James, I hear what you're saying. So now when I go to my coworker and they show up tomorrow at work and their marriage is falling apart, I can tell them, that the Medes and the Persians were, uh, you know, this ram, and then this Greek goat came and destroyed him. And then Alexander the Great died at 32, and his four generals took over the kingdom. And that will really help their marriage. No, it, it won't help their marriage in any way whatsoever. I've been doing counseling for a decade and a half, and I've never once in the middle of counseling said, do you remember how Alexander the Great's like a goat? No, I've never said that. But in my heart, in my personal heart, when the world gets a little out of hand for me, I do think back to Daniel sometimes saying, boy, God, you got this all under control. I mean, I, I, I don't know who's going to win the election in a month, but God's got it under control. No, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Iran and Israel. But God's got it under control. I don't have to sit there in fear. Now, look at Daniel's response, though. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. This is part of the beauty of the honesty of the Bible. When you are given something like this to chew on, you can't take it lightly. So often I hear on TV and see people receive these deep visions from God, and they treat it like it was a little phone call. When you look in the Bible, when somebody is given something deep by the Lord, they physically cannot handle it because the flesh can't handle the things of the spirit and so what happens here daniel is so overwhelmed by this so overwhelmed now the reason i like the honesty about this is because i sometimes respond the same way daniel does let's just all be perfectly blunt sometimes life gets so completely overwhelming i don't think i can get up the next day and handle it. I don't want to. I just want to hide under the covers, and I just want to pray for the return of Christ, because I don't want to deal with life. And some of you have come in here tonight, and you don't want to deal with life. Work is overwhelming. Marriage is overwhelming. Kids are overwhelming. Life is just absolutely overwhelming. And you look at Daniel 8:27, and you sometimes want to faint and be sick for days, because life is difficult to grasp. So I just wanted to finish with this tonight. Because we could sit here and talk about the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and the four generals of Alexander the Great, and that stuff is all amazing, it's all impressive, but what you really are going to use is verse 27, being overwhelmed in life. Look at some of these passages I just want to finish with. One of my favorite ones, 2 Timothy 1.7. 
God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you are a person that is easily overwhelmed in life, this is the verse you need to cling to. God has not given you a spirit of fear. There is nothing in your life that you need to have control you in fear. Because if God knows about the Greeks and the Romans and all this other type of stuff, he can handle what's happening to you in northwest Ohio. He can. So don't let fear, worry, anxiety overcome you. Don't. The God of prophecy will get you through it. He truly will. What about the next one, Galatians 6, 9? And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. How many of us give up? Oh my goodness, how many of us give up? We grow weary while doing good. I look at Daniel here. He was faint and sick for days. But you know what? He's not even close to being done. He's got another vision coming in Daniel 9. He's got another one in Daniel 10. He's got another one in 11 and another one in 12. He's just getting started. Now the thing is, it looks like God gives him a couple years off between them for him to regroup. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes in life we get overwhelmed. I don't know why as Christians we can't admit this. Sometimes when we get overwhelmed in life as Christians, we can't admit we're overwhelmed. We just have to say things like, Jesus is great, everything is wonderful. And we say little catchphrases like, I'm just so blessed I don't know what to do. Sometimes I'm not so blessed I don't know what to do. Sometimes I'm so overwhelmed I don't know what to do. Sometimes I'm Daniel and I'm fainting and I'm sick for days. I just don't show it to you because I get paid to be in a good mood. Now, the truth of the matter is sometimes life is difficult. It is really difficult. And I need to be reminded of Galatians 6, 9, not to grow weary while doing good. I sometimes want to give up. I want to give up on, on people. I want to give up on ministries. I want to give up on life. And God says, don't, don't. Don't grow weary while doing good. In the right season, you will reap a harvest. In the right season, we live in a farming community. Now's the time to take off the beans and the corn. You try to do that in June, what's going to happen? If you go out in the middle of January and try to harvest, you can't. You have to wait for the right season of life to do it. And there's some people I know that I've been waiting for the right season for years, if not a decade plus. Some of you have been walking with the Lord a lot longer. For me, you've been praying for people for decades after decades after decades. God says don't grow weary while doing good. Some of you are in a very difficult marriage right now. Don't grow weary while doing good. Some of you are really frustrated by choices your kids are making. Don't grow weary while doing good. Some of you, it's tough to think about getting up tomorrow and going to work. Don't grow weary while doing good. Be a light, be a witness, and hang in there. What I want to finish with is Psalm 91. Turn to Psalm 91 with me, please. Anybody have any quick questions, comments here about uh, the stuff we're talking about? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, it does. And you brought up a good point there about it kind of blowing your mind. I remember the first time I heard a teaching like this, and it never hit me before. But the enemy, Satan, does not know when Christ is going to return. And you've heard me make this point many times. So since Satan does not know when Christ is going to return, if you look throughout the, the chronicles of history, Satan always has somebody waiting in the wing that could step up and be an antichrist without too much hassle. And if you look back over history, it's really easy to stop and say, well, you know, Saddam Hussein was that type of character. Hitler was that type of character. You can go back throughout history and always find these characters that were horrible, despicable men that came really close to being world powers sometimes. And so what you see here is the enemy always has some cards saying, okay, is this the time? Is this the time? And this is the thing, and I want to make this abundantly clear. I firmly believe, by the way, the Bible teaches that the Antichrist is not revealed on who he is until the rapture happens. So I think any time sitting here trying to figure out who the Antichrist is completely wasted, and it's just not worth it. The point is, when the rapture of the church happens, that's when the man of sin will be revealed. Who's that man of sin going to be? I don't know. We're just wasting time thinking about it. But I know Christians that really like to think about it. I don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So God's got it all under control. He knows what's going on. Carly. Yeah, it talks about in 1 John. 
that there's many antichrists, little a, but there's one antichrist, big A. An anti just means against Christ or means in place of Christ. So the antichrist is somebody who is against what Jesus stands for, but in some ways the antichrist is somebody who stands in the place of Jesus trying to direct worship towards him. If you look at the antichrist in Revelation 13, he does both. He asks the world to worship him, but he also is opposing Christ in all things that he does. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and the neat thing about what you just said there, too, is if you take somebody like Nostradamus and his prophecies, the only ones the Discovery Channel tells us about are the ones that came true. No one else talks about the hundreds of writings that absolutely make no sense that we're scratching our head at. That's the beauty of biblical prophecy. Every one of them is true. Every one. And that's the beauty of it all coming together like that. Yeah, Jody. Yeah. And that's a good point. You can kind of twist it. It goes back to the example of the, um, of the uh, horoscopes. And I'm not recommending going home and reading your horoscope in the paper. But if you're a sinner and you do, if you go read it, what happens is it, it's so vague that it can apply to anything and anybody. It really is. That type of yeah, Carly. Yeah. That's exactly what the enemy does. He throws enough little truth in it, and it goes back to Adam and Eve sinning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. He takes the truth of God's word, he twists it. He twists the truth of the scripture. If you look at a lot of the false religions out there, they have all taken an element of truth, and, and they quote verses from the Bible, they talk about Jesus, they may talk about heaven, but they twist it, and that's where it becomes an issue. I'd be careful with that twisting. So here, what I want to finish with is Psalm 91. I heard a pastor say one time, just like when you're in an emergency, you dial 911. If you're an emergency in life, go to Psalm 91. Look at this. Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We get to abide under the shadow of God. Amen. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. If, if worry, fear, anxiety, depression, discouragement get the best of you, look at verse 2. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Verse 3, He shall deliver you from the snares of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Verse 4, He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. We have chickens at home, and every now and then we hatch out some uh, chicklings. And what happens is you see these little things do exactly that. Verse 4, they go right under their mother's wing. And that's the picture that you seek is you run unto the arms of the Lord. Look at verse 5. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by the day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lies waste at noonday. If you are somebody that fear gets the best of you, look at verses 5 and 6. Anything you could be afraid of, God says don't. Verse 5, you should not be afraid of the terror at night. We use these verses all the time with the boys. Dad, I heard a scary sound outside. Psalm 91.5, don't be afraid of the terror at night. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness. God love them. I know a lot of hypochondriacs. They always think they have the next worst disease. Psalm 91.6, you should not be afraid of the pestilence that walks in darkness. If something happens to you, God forbid, physically, the God of prophecy is still going to take care of you. Let's not walk in fear of things. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right, but it shall not come near you only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked because you have made the lord who is my refuge even the most high your dwelling place no evil shall befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwelling for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways and their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra the young lion and the serpent and you shall trample underfoot here's a great ending verses 14 through 16 because he has set his love upon me therefore i will deliver him i will set him on high because he has known my name i shall call upon him 
and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. See, I'm not picking on Daniel because if I had seen what Daniel saw, I'd be fainting and sick for days as well. But the point is, the reason we have Daniel chapter 8 is for us to know, hey, I don't have to worry about this stuff. I tell you, remember 2 Timothy 1.7, remember Galatians 6.9, remember Psalm 91. With whatever you're facing in life, God gives you the strength to get through it. He truly will. And we don't have to worry about anything because the God who knows the beginning from the end is the same God that we worship. So it's a little after 8 o'clock here. I appreciate your flexibility and let us go a little late. Anybody got any final things they want to say before we close up? All righty, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, um, I just pray it's great to have this knowledge, Lord, that that's, but knowledge is, is not what we need. Lord, we need to know you. And I pray that this knowledge we have of future events encourages us to trust you in all the way more and more and more. Lord, help us to be a godly example at, at home, at work, and at school of not allowing fear and worry and, and anxiety to control us, but help us be a witness in the middle of the storm. For those that are struggling with something tonight and their life is over, overwhelming. Uplift them, encourage them, Lord, as only you can. And Lord, we lift this up in your name, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.